This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Freeland, welcome back. This is Chapter 2 of the Book Club, overbooked, however you would like to refer to it. We are covering the Sabu book that is entitled Scars, Silence, and Superglue. We uh, read Chapter 1, and now we are into Chapter 2, so you know what? Without any further ado, let's jump right into it. Lansing, Michigan was home of one of the best heels in the history of professional wrestling, the Sheik. In order to understand me and where I come from, you have to also first learn about him. That will make more sense later on. My mother's brother, Ed Farhat, was born in 1924. He came from a pretty big family and had to deal with some survival as well. As my mother was, he was one of 10 children. Their parents were Lebanese immigrants and didn't have a whole lot growing up. My uncle scrapped and clawed his way through their childhood. After fighting a bunch of time in the streets, it only made sense that he went out and fought for our country. So following his recruitment to fight in World War II, he was then recruited by a wrestling promoter. He went straight from serving in the U.S. Army to the wrestling ring. His first real gig was on one of the earliest channels in television. Television was still a baby back then. One company called DeMont Broadcasting was one of the world's first commercial networks. Starting out in the mid-1940s, this company was the only real competitor to NBC and CBS. It was really among TV's very first channels. You could see it nationwide anywhere. Needless to say, there was good content out there, but they needed good content, the channel, and it was cheap to produce by Dumont. And it was the first one to discover wrestling was a great fit for TV at that time. Back then, you see, you only needed two good cameras and someone to pick out the shots. There was no real editing, lighting, or heavy production needed. Everything was just shot live as it happened. Therefore, the live coverage of matches was easy to air, and it was a good fit for the channel that needed some content. The first airings were matches shot under the banner of Capital Wrestling Corporation, which was the predecessor to WWE. As a TV show, the wrestling program did very well. It appeared in 20% of all households in the United States. DeMott capitalized from the success by offering weekly wrestling shows to the rest of the country. My uncle got his first break in wrestling in Capitol in Chicago at the Marigold Gardens. Using cartoony stereotypes in wrestling, it was very easy to hook fans in. It became a very common gimmick in the ring for many wrestlers. One that still remains even to this day, still makes pretty big money. This is why he originally called himself the Sheik of Arbe. 
He probably didn't know it at the time, but he would make a lifetime career of being the Sheik. He began his wrestling career in 1951 as the Sheik, and he continued to perform this role until the mid-1990s when he was 70 years old. And he began to pass the torch to me. Again, his character was instantly hateable from the start, which was exactly what he wanted. He was a foreigner on American soil and against the American way in a time that immediately followed the Second World War. He wore Middle Eastern gear, stabbed people with pencils, and threw fireballs in people's faces. He also was billed as coming from a very wealthy, aristocratic Middle Eastern family. This enraged fans without a whole lot of money. Well, they had to scrap to get by just to buy tickets. To create even more heat, he eventually worked elements of insanity into his personality. He eventually morphed into a more of a maniacal madman from Syria. All these elements made for really great TV. Now, in order to make a living off of this gimmick, he decided to really live his gimmick. What that meant was he had to take on the persona in almost every facet of his life, both inside and outside the ring. This meant that when the camera stopped rolling and the lights stopped shining, Ed Farhat was not coming back. He was, and still will always be, the Sheik. Even at home, if I called him Uncle Ed, he stopped answering. Eventually, his own family started calling him Sheik, or he wouldn't show us the time of day. I never called him Uncle Ed. Never. Even his little grandchildren had to call him Grandpa Sheik. The Sheik's ring entrance really was awesome. It set the mood to piss off the wrestling fans. He was acting so un-American. The Sheik's ring entrance really was awesome. It set the mood to piss off the entire wrestling fans. He was acting so un-American as possible. He unrolled a carpet, lit incense, and sometimes charmed a snake right to the ring. After a ceremonial prayer, he would then point towards the sky in praise of Allah. Of course, this is where I eventually would inherit my trademark gesture in posing in tribute to him. The Sheik looked the part of an anti-American villain, spar sparing no expense getting it done right. Once I was old enough to know who he was, I was fascinated with everything about him. On TV, he would always come to the ring with tons of these expensive, shiny robes. He also had camel-embroidered tights and boots that would turn into a weapon by tapping the toe sometimes. I remember one Thanksgiving sneaking upstairs in his house, hoping to get a look in his closet just to see some of the chic stuff. Being a student of the sport, I really needed to get a look up at his gear. I excused myself to go to the bathroom. After snooping around a little while, my family downstairs, I quickly passed around everybody. Oh, they didn't know. They were having pumpkin pie. I finally found a stash of his wrestling clothes hanging up in the back of the closet. I removed the robe with great care, like I had just found a lost national treasure. After inspecting it for some time, I finally tried it on. I stood on a large cedar chest just to see myself in the mirror. Something's missing, I thought. I got down and started looking in the drawers for the final piece of the puzzle. Socks, underwear, nothing. When I was almost finally ready to give up, I cracked open the chest itself. Bingo. There I removed his traditional headdress. Man, 
that was something else. Panicking for a minute, I looked around like a junkie trying to find his next fix. I knew he'd be calling upon me soon, so I had to act fast. I quickly put the material on my head and fastened it with a band. Then I hopped back off and on my perch to look back into the mirror. I looked at my reflection and smiled. Terry, a voice said loudly under my breath. I dove down underneath the big wooden box and disrobed faster than a hungry Chippendale. Uh, sorry, Aunt Joyce, I said in total fear, trying to put away the contraband. Please? Oh, you, you, you won't tell him, will you? The sheik was often accompanied to the ring by my Aunt Joyce, who he called his servant. Her ring name was the Princess. Years before Randy Savage would have his valet, Miss Elizabeth, the sheik abused his woman slave during his entrance to piss off the audience. The fans always booed when they saw this evil man pushing this woman around and would scream when she finally submitted to his wishes, kneeling at his feet. While he didn't go that far at home, it was obvious that she didn't want him to know what had just happened. And Joyce ushered me out of the room and down the staircase without another word about it. Please don't, I said. I was terrified at the thoughts of entering my head. Having watched too many Saturday morning cartoons like Tom and Cherry, I pictured the worst. Sheik, my aunt might say, holding me by the arm, pulling me back to the Thanksgiving table. You will never guess who I found in the room trying on your clothes. I pictured everyone around the table who had been smiling, stopping in unison, and scowling at me, scowling at me like they just smelled bad shit. You little son of a bitch, the sheik would say, leaping over the turkey's carcass and flying after me. I would fumble around the house, tripping over furniture, looking for an exit, but all the doors were locked from the inside. Just before he got me, he reached over to the desk in the living room and grabbed a large number two pencil. This will teach you to touch my stuff. Oh, no. But that's not what happened. When we got downstairs to the dinner table, my aunt helped me to my seat and kayfabe the whole thing. Would you like some ice cream, she asked. I looked up into her eyes and nodded. Strawberry or chocolate? Growing up, I didn't know he was special. When my friends would finally make the connection that wrestling was in my family, the first question they would ask me is, Is your uncle the Sheik? Then the follow-up question would always be, Well, is wrestling fake? Early on, I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't know how it worked because even I always thought my uncle was real. I thought maybe in professional wrestling, maybe you could have a choice. My uncle never said he was working. He never called wrestling a work. That is why I almost never use the term even today. Backing things up a little bit, the Sheik's entire presentation of himself translated to gold in the ring. He won his first championship in 1953 as one half of the Midwest Tag Team Champions with a guy named Gypsy Joe. A year later, he beat Johnny Valentine for his first singles championship, the Texas heavyweight title. Later in 1965, he would feud with Valentine for Detroit's United States belt, a title he would go on to hold 12 times over the next 12 years. Now, my uncle was a great showman. To add to the mystique of his character, he never, ever spoke. His body language 
alone got him over. He never picked up a microphone. Fans maybe thought this actually meant that he felt that he was above everyone else, that he didn't really need to talk and that people were beneath him. The silent treatment really added to the mystique of who he was. The power of the Sheik's ominous silence filled fans with terror. With only an occasional gibberish version of Arabic, the Sheik was mostly silent his whole career. And my uncle, as himself, was almost mostly quiet when in public. There was one exception to the vow of silence he took. It was on Rich Little's show, You Asked For It, in 1981. In one particular episode that featured the Sheik, they interviewed promoter Ed Farat, who played a character that was not the Sheik, but rather someone else talking about the Sheik. He was filmed as a separate person off camera and spoke in a scary voice. The guy that goes into the ring with the Sheik has to first of all fear for his life, my uncle said, because he's going to hit you with fire and he's going to boot you to death or he's going to pull out a little object that he's been hidden away and poke you away. at. I mean, he doesn't really like anyone and he doesn't really, I don't know, want to like anybody. Even though his actions in the ring spoke louder than words, to keep up the charade, sometimes a sheep would come to the ring with a manager to do the speaking for him. This included someone, someone who would help him, someone who would come with a turban and sunglasses, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, Ernie Roth, Eddie Ketchman, or even Dave Supermouth Dawson. While you won't see managers nowadays much on TV other than maybe Paul Heyman with Brock Lesnar. They're, they were a huge part of wrestling in the early years. Having a manager as a mouthpiece was perfect for the Sheik to get his message across and to still protect his mystique. Without a manager in tow, Sheik's evil tag team partner Gypsy Joe often acted like one. Joe always helped to get my uncle over and did all the talking for him. After working in the territory system as a gypsy, the Sheik eventually got too big and broke solo in the singles competition for the most coveted championship there was, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Booked in what was to be the Sheik's biggest match up until that point, the big fight in Chicago was the most coveted title in the sports world against one of the greatest, Luthez. However, before the match even happened, my uncle had caught word backstage that Thez had plans for him during the match because he hated gimmick wrestlers. Now, back in the territorial days, it was a bit like the wild, wild west. Quite often, the anything goes mentality came into play. Matches were not highly choreographed or scripted. The NWA champion was often selected because of his ability to shoot when necessary. You see, sometimes the champion had to deal with an opponent that would go into business for himself, meaning he would act in a certain way that was only beneficial to him. There were cases where an opponent of a small territory would actually attempt to beat the NWA world champion for real to get noticed and put the promotion on the map. Because of the potential the champion had to really be this guy who could handle himself in the ring for real, well, it was interesting, and a lot of funny business got to be tried to be pulled off. Luthez was a legitimate tough guy and didn't take any nonsense. He didn't play around with cartoony characters. He really hated gimmicks. 
Therefore, days before the big match, word had it that he was planning to make an example out of my uncle if he tried any of those theatrics in the ring. It was November 18th of 55 at the International Amphitheater in Chicago, Illinois. For the fans, it was the tail end of a nasty snowstorm that night when the Sheik was to wrestle six-time NWA world champion Luthez. Before the bout, the Sheik intentionally bumped into Luthez in the back. So you don't like my character? I didn't say that, Lou replied. Well, what did you say? I said that if you try any of your shit, I'm just going to break your legs tonight, he said jokingly. Not going to happen, he said. The two wrestlers entered the ring. The Sheik went through all of his pre-match rituals, and the NWA world champion watched, rubbing his hands together like one of those grief-stricken guys. It was a real quick fall. Then, before they could even lock up, my uncle rolled out of the ring. The Sheik taunted Lou. What did I tell you? The champion said. Then, there was a chase. The audience watched in amazement as the Sheik ran around the ring, into the crowd and all throughout the building, and into the blizzard. The crowd followed Lou into the middle of the street in the snowstorm. After my uncle, seeing a parked bus that couldn't move due to the few feet of snow that had already fallen, the Sheik ran into the side and started digging with his hands like a woodchuck. He quickly dug a hole, and by the time Thez caught up to him, he had made it through the crowd of people. He burrowed underneath the bus. He stayed there for three hours. Obviously, getting counted out and losing the match wasn't everything. The show continued after the event. Police turned out along with EMTs and fire engines. News reporters came over to cover the strange occurrence from the wrestling. And people from all over the city swarmed to finally find out what had happened. Now, the next day, my uncle's actions became headlines all over the country. The Sheik, wild man from Syria, hides from his opponent under a bus in Chicago. Now, at this point, Lou had actually come to appreciate all the attention that this little stunt had done for him as well. His name was in all the papers, and people really believed that he had been in for a tough opponent in a weird situation. You liked it then. Boy, you had a lot of guts to do that, Lou laughed. Behind the scenes, they eventually became good friends, and after that, they worked a number of matches together all around the country and drew great money. My cousin, Captain Ed Farhat Jr., has said in many interviews that the publicity from that big match and the subsequent rematches elevated the Sheik to even new heights. He said that the phone literally started ringing off the hook from promoters all around the world looking to bring his father into their promotion. Now, by the way, my cousin, the Sheik's son, eventually got into the business. But by myself, he was just something else. You couldn't be lazy either. Couldn't be lazy when you were training with the Sheik. The Sheik did things his way. In a day before viral videos and the internet, his reputation preceded itself. In an attempt to outdo himself in every event and keeping the ball rolling, he really started to raise the measuring stick. Fans had come to expect something crazy out of him. So in order to not disappoint, he had to continue. To get him booked in all these weird far-off territories to increase his brand, he had to really go that extra mile. Now eventually the Sheik bumped up with violence. He had to take things to the next notch. 
or two, or in his case, maybe 10. I remember watching some of his matches and thinking to myself, geez, nobody's safe during any of his matches. Oh my gosh, no one even wants to be the ref. As in any war, you sometimes risk getting hit with shrapnel. This is just one of the risks that you have to take when you get in the ring. This was even more so with the Sheik when you're on enemy lines. He wouldn't only attack you, he would hit you. He would hit your mother and any innocent bystander too. It wasn't rare for him to ransack a ring, ring announcer or clothesline a cameraman. He didn't think twice about drop kicking a commentator or tapping out a timekeeper. He would even fuck with the fans. Anyone who found themselves on the onslaught of the Sheik's offense, well, needless to say, his behavior was unpredictable in and outside of the ring. But for many, it was still fun to watch. The Sheik made sure to include multiple unorthodox elements in each one of his matches, instead of just one or two. When he amped up his character for the more violent personification, he worked in more of the hair pulling, the biting, the stabbing, more fireballs. He came to be known for leaving the ring soiled and red in whatever he wrestled. It was always a bloodbath. After a chic fight, it often looked like someone had roadkill and someone had bloody bison smeared all over the canvas. Now, Dory Funk Jr. tells a story of a match that he once had with the Sheik in Lubbock. He explained that the Sheik pulled a sulfurous, sulfurous substance out of his tights and threw a big red-orange ball fire right at him. Then after the match, he went back to the dressing room and saw that the fireball wasn't the only thing that was red and orange. His eyebrows were singed, and he had burned his face. Even though the fans protested against the Sheik that night, Dory said... Every future appearance of the Sheik in Texas was sold out. Eventually, the Sheik's formula for success was created. With no words, he would bring the violence. And when he was done, he would be dumping buckets of blood all over the ring. In matches with another wrestler, he would continue to make a living off of bloodshed. There was another person called Abdullah the Butcher. The Sheik took their matches out of the arena and into the streets he held up traffic. They hit each other with pencils and forks and street cones and broken bottles until the police finally came to break it up. The Sheik didn't know it at the time, but he was a pioneer. He was laying the groundwork and influencing a future generation. He was creating hardcore wrestling as far back as the 1960s with his crazy, unorthodox use of barbed wire fireballs and a whole odd assortment of innovative and foreign objects as weapons. He started getting booked everywhere from word of mouth on his name alone. At first, when a promoter had never booked him before, but then they saw what he was doing in the ring, they didn't understand all of it. They would watch his matches and think about not using him again because he was too wild for them. However, after getting the gate receipts and the numbers after the show was over, they quickly realized that he was actually becoming a bigger and bigger draw every time they used him. At this point, the Sheik's reputation was horrible, but in a good way. Before he even got into the ring, people were throwing fits and trying to get at him through the aisle. His entrances were more and more looking like security traps from a riot. Now, the funny thing is that this happened everywhere, even in the most peaceful places. Eventually, he found himself going to work in New York City for Vincent J. McMahon, 
the father of the man you see on television today. There he wrestled for the first time in Madison Square Garden, where he would soon feud with one of the biggest world champions ever, Bruno San Martino. Immediately after appearing under such a big spotlight, he was being booked to appear for even bigger promotions at the time, but these were overseas. My uncle told me about his debut match in Japan. It was a sellout. The word about his appearance in the country translated to instant ticket sales. The Japanese fans had done their homework. They'd seen pictures of him in these magazines, and they knew exactly what he was and what he was doing. The Sheik got all geared up and ready for his first fight for Antonio Inoki in New Japan Pro Wrestling. He was backstage in a strange world and wondered how well his anti-American gimmick would translate in Japan. In a classic case of curiosity killing the cat, he walked around behind the curtain to take a peek. Because a line had piled up with all these people in chairs, huh, he began to get an idea. He then stacked the chairs directly, creating this divide. He actually had to step around them to go outside of the blinders for a moment in order to see what was going on. In the short amount of time, the fans had finally spotted him. Sheik, the fans would cry, pointing him out to their friends. He picked up a chair and launched it into the entranceway, where my uncle was hiding behind cloth. In order to avoid being hit, he had jumped out from behind the curtain, run down the edge of the curtain line, and then ducked back for safety. But it was too late. A big portion of the audience saw how the throne chair brought out the sheik, and then fans' actions went viral. Catching on immediately like a brush fire, the whole section of people who had the chairs went berserk. They all started throwing these chairs at him. Now, the thing that really makes this story so crazy is that Japanese fans are usually harmless. If you've ever seen a Japanese match, you know that they are usually so reserved that you don't even hear them cheer or boo. They just clap. However, these Japanese fans threw all of those manners out the window the very first night they saw the Sheik. I don't know what they had heard about him or what caused all of this stir, but for whatever reason it was, they were burying this anti-American persona in a country that was once our enemy. It's amazing, isn't it? His legend alone invoked anger from crowds, and they didn't even know him. Now, back in America, the Sheik was being booked against a who's who in professional wrestling. One of the first stops back in the United States was with the WWWF to finish some unfinished business. For his title match against their champion in 1968, Bruno San Martino, they took things to the next level. Three more huge house shows at MSG furthered put the Sheik on the map. My uncle won his first match by countout. In their next, he lost by disqualification. And then they had a rematch. And he finally submitted, losing to Bruno in a Texas death match by submission. Their third bout at Madison Square Garden had the Sheik written all over it. In the finish, Bruno grabbed a foreign object and held it high in the air. It was the fountain ink pen in a turnabout as fair play kind of thing. Oh, the Sheik is a living legend. He reportedly had a pin hold in the Sheik's arm, made a bloody mess all over the place again until he submitted and quit. Bruno and the Sheik also battled big matches in Boston, including one impressive sellout show that took place the day after a massive snowstorm. The thing that really made this noticeable was that 
There was no means of public transportation to even get to the building, but fans were still there. People were snowshoeing and dog sledding all the way to the arena. They were braving the worst elements possible just to see the match. In addition to working with the WWWF and Bruno San Martino, the Sheik also wrestled a whole lot in Canada and Toronto alone. The Sheik had an undefeated streak at the Maple Leaf Gardens. It's 127 matches. Within that reign of terror, he defeated all the big names of that time, including Billy Watson, the aforementioned Luthez, Gene Kanitsky, Edouard Carpenter, Ernie the Lad, Chief Jay Strongbow, Tiger Jeet Singh, and Johnny Valentine. He even beat the living hell out of Andre the Giant on his first tour of North America in 1974. The Sheik had created himself an unbelievable commodity. His marketability served him well, making him a lot of money on the road. He performed all over the world. Wherever there was wrestling, he was the Sheik. He became a box office draw for many regional promotions willing to pay because the Sheik would know there'd be a sellout. The Sheik had a family, however. Rather than travel all the places everywhere to collect money, he only would take certain places and make certain amounts of money that he decided to, and then the rest of his time he would spend at home. This is when he decided to put things together, put his own promotion together. He decided to do it in Michigan. By the early 1960s, the Sheik was homebound. He returned to Detroit, determined to create his own promotion and cut out the middlemen. He went beyond doing so with so much within the normal territorial means at that time, not stepping on anyone else's toes, but in 1964, he bought a piece of Jim Barnett's Midwestern NWA territory, covering Detroit and small parts of Montreal and Ohio, and big-time wrestling was ready to go. Way, way before there was a Vince McMahon, sold out the Silverdome with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant at WrestleMania three. my uncle started selling out the Kobo Arena. No words at all could describe our happiness. The Sheik drew more fans and sold more tickets in more places for a longer period of time than anyone else in history, says Jim Cornette. All of the Sheik's matches were very much like that headline, WrestleMania. Fans knew going into it that Hogan and Andre were going to wrestle, but their wrestling abilities weren't really going to steal the show. It was about hope. It was about fear. It was the fans' anticipation that was going to bring them out to see something amazing. And it did, and it filled the seats. In Detroit, it was all about seeing the Sheik punch a guy right in front of you, or maybe even going home with some of the Sheik's blood on your program. Terry Funk once said, if you could guarantee that on a Saturday night at Kobo Arena in Detroit that a man is going to get gored to death, you'd be sitting there with a complete sellout crowd. So that is exactly what the Sheik did. While my uncle didn't give any guarantees, he came pretty darn close by setting certain expectations. In order to live up to his own name, he brought in some of the biggest names in the game. The Sheik used to tell the story about during the pre-Civil Rights era days, he originally laid the building blocks for a great friendship. Wrestling in a good old boys Texas arena, the Sheik was ready to battle with one of the superfans, 
in one of his favorite opponents named Bobo Brazil. He walked down to the ring in his typical chorus of booze, and he stepped under the ring. And then he would get the reaction from these rabid fans that noticed before the bout, even the arena was segregated. There was a special section set up for black fans. It was way up in the balcony. There were people who were seated behind chicken wire, like caged animals. Oh, when you got to the ring and you saw the seating that was set up, he didn't like it. After his pre-match rituals, but before the bell rang, he circled the ring for a moment. Before he could even lock up with Bobo, he covered his face with his headdress and gestured to his opponent. Stall the ref, he said under his breath. The sheik jumped out of the ring in full sheik regalia. He pushed his way through the redneck fans and climbed 15 feet into the air to the balcony seats. He scaled his way across the lip of the riser and tore down the wire. The audience erupted. He did what he wanted it to do, and he did not give a shit. The action was so twofold, it pissed off all the racist fans in attendance. But it even more did stuff for the black fans who felt more at home. The bell finally rang. When the Sheik finally got back in the ring, he locked up with Bobo Brazil. They were in a position where they could exchange words. What the hell did you do? A shocked Bobo asked. Gave you guys a better view, the Sheik would reply. The promoters are racist assholes. To hell with them. The two wrestlers batted out for the rest of the match. However, they were laughing at what the Sheik had done. Later on, he still got paid by the anger promoters of the segregated South. He simply played his actions off as being part of the show and was just part of the Sheik trying to get heat. After about 20 years of blood, sweat, and tears, the Sheik summoned his friend Bobo Brazil to work for him at Cobo Arena in Detroit. There he created a feud with would become one of the greatest opponents of all time. Bobo Brazil was perfect for that role. Out of Benton Harbor, Michigan, he was practically a hometown hero wherever he wrestled. He was a perfect enemy for my uncle in every way possible. He was one of those most famous black athletes of his time. He was loved by fans, and he was a clean wrestler. He never cheated. He didn't try to kill his opponent in the ring. He would just offer his hand to his opponent in a show of sportsmanship. He was the Jackie Robinson of wrestling who really paved the way for other black wrestlers. In 1971, the Sheik had a big match with him in front of 15,000 people for a big-time wrestling event. It was his main event, the Kobo Arena. My uncle booked the referee, the world-famous boxer Joe Lewis, to keep things under control. Bobo's career was on the line in a best two-out-of-three pinfall match. Bobo broke up Sheik's signature camel clutch and quickly pinned him to win the first fall. Then in the second round, Sheik turned up the heat and busted Bobo open illegally with a pencil. In the big finish, Bobo headbutted the Sheik to the mat. Joe Lewis then took the hidden pencil out of the Sheik, out of the Sheik's boot, and gave it to Bobo. The special guest referee then walked slowly to the far corner of the ring, turned his back to the match, and covered his eyes. The audience erupted to Bobo getting his revenge and jabbing the Sheik with the Sheik's own pencil over and over again in his forehead before pinning him. Wrestling historian Percival A. Friend said, After the big match, the Sheik's blood flowed like the mighty Detroit River just outside the confines of Kobo Arena. 
Bobo Brazil and my uncle busted each other open many times after that, swapping the big-time United States Championship back and forth and back and forth for many years. They took their own show onto the road onto several other markets, including Memphis and Los Angeles. His other major opponent was someone in Los Angeles, Freddie Blassie. They faced off several times, including cage matches in the Grand Olympic Auditorium. The Detroit fans that the Sheik drew his promotion, Big Time Wrestling, were crazy and quite unique. They were really, really into themselves. He appealed to the most basic primal urge. To put it bluntly, the fans came to see the Sheik wrestle were almost as fucking scary as the Sheik. They were bloodthirsty in a way that only rivaled Roman gladiators. They wanted to see blood and guts and gore. Quite often, brawls broke out in Detroit wrestling audiences just over who the fans thought would win the main event. Jim Cornette tells a story about just how insane the Detroit fans were. He said that one night, they were so upset that the Sheik's manager, Eddie Kretschmann, he had to climb to safety and stand on the ring apron just to stay away from the fans. This pissed off the audience even more as the Sheik decided that there got to be something else. They continued to fight in the ring. A crazy Mark, which is what they call the fans, jumped up and pulled Kretschmann down into the audience. There, the fans took turns giving the Detroit-style beatdown. Since he was my uncle's mouthpiece, they were essentially killing the messenger. As it often does, the violence became contagious. Security then jumped in at one fan who started it all, and they beat the shit out of him. The moment they stopped, my uncle told Art Thomas it was time to take it home, and they rushed to the finish, throwing a big, filthy fireball in his face. The Sheik knew that Detroit fans were a rare breed and decided to participate in making it a movie set for his promotion called I Like to Hurt People. Go figure. Donald G. Jackson, later known for The Hell Comes to Frogtown, started filming the movie in the late 1970s but ran out of money. Because of this, the footage was shelved until the New World Pictures people came along. They decided to help Jackson finish the film as a documentary, adding additional fictional scenes, including a crowd of protesters crusading against the Sheik. A funny subplot revolved around a Stop the Sheik movement bent on ending the championship's gruesome reign. While the movie may be kind of cheesy, it had an excellent footage of Andre the Giant, Abdullah the Butcher, Terry and Dory Funk, Ox Baker, Little Atlas, and even Dusty Rhodes. It was essentially an 80-minute fake shoot interview of wrestlers from the Detroit region of the NWA and all the shenanigans that came along with it. There was even a director's cut containing certain interviews that were very comical and a very nice country music number. This campy film, I Like to Hurt People, is billed as a documentary. But again, it's actually a work. It's silly and old school and has a ton of legends in it, but it is cheesy and it has terrible acting and it is ridiculous and it was shoddily put together. But those are the exact reasons why I liked it. It's extremely representative of how wrestling used to be and an example of how many of us remember what wrestling is. The film does capture more than just the Sheik's reign of terror or Detroit and its nutty fans. It includes a feeling of how it was to wrestle during the entire territorial period. When Vince McMahon's WWF took over, 
Many call it the end of the territories. But in this film, you can see another reason why some of the territories began dying out. A lot of the veterans in the film had a campy fake feeling about them that modern wrestling fans just weren't buying. But my uncle's charisma is felt all throughout the screen. It's not that he what he said, but it's more of what he didn't say. My uncle kept it up and kept getting hated all the way till the end. Now, speaking of hate, in 1988, at the age of 60, my uncle was booked in the NWA's Great American Bash Tour for Jim Crockett Promotions. When the tour was passing through Detroit, since the Sheik was a hometown hero, Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes, who were running the show, offered him a pretty good deal, hoping he might help draw at the arena. For this card, they offered my uncle $1,000 plus 50% of the gate as a bonus for everything they made over fifty grand. Before the match, WCW only made around 40000 on shows in Detroit because they were based out of the South, so many people didn't think the Sheik's drawing power would work down there. However, what they didn't realize was the drawing power of my uncle in Detroit, let alone considering the fact that it was one of the few times he would ever be seen working as a babyface in his own home state. The Sheik wasn't really being billed as a heel. He was set to team with Dusty Rhodes against Kevin Sullivan and Dick Murdoch. So yeah, it took him almost 60 years, but he finally was a fan favorite in his hometown. And that for him was a big deal. With the Sheik headlining the card, the show turned out to be a big success. It drew 200000 at the house. However, as you could probably guess, he never saw any of that bonus either. J.R. Dusty Rhodes, or both of them, fucked him and gave him every excuse in the world why they wouldn't pay him. Wow. They couldn't pay him 75000 that they agreed on. Because my uncle was old school, and it was all on a handshake, no contract. He got screwed with no Vaseline. This is why I don't get along with JR to this day. After that, there was always great heat. JR has always talked down about my uncle and treated him like an asshole if he was around. And that made me hate him even more. This is why I've slammed JR on Twitter. Despite the fact that Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes didn't recognize my uncle for what he was really worth, others around the world however, did. When the Sheik finally went down for the count and passed away in 2003, people everywhere noticed. His hard work had been caught by many eyes of many fans all around the world. He actually got an obituary in the New York Times where they complimented him by saying, the Sheik single-handedly escalated the violence and commercial appeal of professional wrestling in the early years of television. Now, it's true the early days of TV when Dick Van Dyke couldn't even lay in the same bed as his television wife. Nobody dared push the envelope to what you could do on television. Nobody except for maybe my uncle. That's going to take us to the end of Chapter 2. So many interesting things here. A couple things I want to talk about here about Chapter 2. So we learn more about the Sheik. We learn more about how he kept kayfabe alive with his family, which was interesting. We learned that he stayed in character all throughout. Uh, He never really broke character at all. And in fact, having his grandchildren uh, call him Grandpa Sheik. And the fact that he really did make himself a spectacle. I mean, you know, it just wasn't the match itself. It was very much the antics of what 
came with the Sheik and the pencils and the fireball and the blood and the violence. These are all things that really made the Sheik stand out versus everybody else. He had great feuds with people like Luthez as well, and he traveled all over the United States in several different territories, and he made good money. But it seems like whenever he came across a big company, they just didn't want to give him his just dues. They didn't want to give him the money that he so rightfully deserved. And I think that's why Sabu has such an issue with that. Now, the story of Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross wanting him to come in, hey, we'll pay you $1,000 if you come in and do this, and then we'll give you X amount of dollars uh, over the gate once we hit 50000 That didn't happen. You know, He was scheduled to make $75,000 for this. He didn't see a penny of it. Yeah, that, that's a problem. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he got his flat booking rate, but he didn't see the money he should have seen. And when you think about what the Sheik did bring to the table, I mean, it, everything you see in ECW was originally because of the original Sheik and all these hardcore matches and all this bleeding and all of this kind of stuff that the more graphic stuff, I mean, getting color wasn't something that was brand new to wrestling. It was always around, but in which the way you got color is what the Sheik actually brought to the table. I mean, pencils and barbed wire and fireballs, all of that kind of stuff. Not to mention the gimmick itself. You're rolling out the little carpet and then obviously praying to Allah and his ring attire. These things did not appeal in the 1950s and 60s. There were a lot of wrestlers back in the day who came from a collegiate background. They were called shooters. And they did not like the more campy, cartoonish wrestlers that had gimmicks. And therefore, they would actually work them over even more. It, it, it's really fascinating when you look at where wrestling was to where wrestling is today and, and how we got there. You can always enjoy wrestling. And, and I highly recommend you do. But you have to understand the lineage behind it. You have to understand who the people were that laid the groundwork for the people that we watch today. Because without the people of the past, there is no people right now. So interesting. But that's going to do it for Chapter 2. I hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun uh, reading this chapter before and, and now presenting it to you. Uh, hopefully I didn't speak too fast and I didn't stumble too much. But I know my reading isn't exactly perfect. When we come back... We are going to be entering in the world of Chapter 3. It's going to be all about training, Sabu's training in the world of professional wrestling. So now we're going to be getting more into the nuts and bolts of what he did, how he did it, who trained him, what were training sessions like. So we're going to get into all that. But I do want to let you know if you're enjoying what we're doing, by all means, go ahead and tag us on Twitter as well. Let us know you're enjoying Overbooked. And we have our live show each and every Tuesday night on Twitch. It is Front Row Material and Future Stars Now. If you would please go over there. We're at Front Row Material. Hit the follow button. And if you're so inclined, hit the subscribe button. Uh, it's it's not free uh, when we make the show because obviously there's, there's money that we put into it. So if you could throw a few dollars our way, we would appreciate it. Also, we have all of our interviews up on our YouTube page. So all you got to do is search Front Row Material please hit that like and then subscribe and notification bell so you are notified each and every time a brand new interview is up. With that being said, it has been fun. We hope you enjoyed it too, and we will catch you next time on Overbooked. The World of NLW Radio Network.
never stops. stops.